that once one sits and thinks about God, one recognizes that God is not running the world in some sort of, uh, you know, cruel or arbitrary way. Shalom from Jerusalem and welcome back to another episode of the Korean Podcast. Uh, this week we had the distinct privilege and pleasure to talk to Dr. Yael Ziegler um, to help get us in the right frame of mind for Tisha B'Av. Um, of course, we spoke to her about her fantastic new book, Lamentations, Faith in a Turbulent World on the Book of Eicha. Dr. Ziegler is uh, the author of two books in the Magid Studies in Tanakh series. Um, we also had a chance to ask her about her own thoughts and personal reflections on Tisha B'Av on the three weeks uh, on suffering um, to get us into the, the, the right frame of mind, um, but also some messages of hope uh, that we can take with us after the fast. Um, Arie and I have discussed offline what a distinct honor it is to be able to uh, record and broadcast uh, this show from the partially rebuilt Jerusalem, um, and we continue to, to pray uh, for the complete rebuilding and redemption of Jerusalem and all the Jewish people. Um, it looks as if this year we will be marking Tisha B'Av in the way that we're familiar, but we pray that this will be the last one. At this stage, I must also offer an apology, um, quite appropriately for the three weeks, I suppose. Uh, there were a number of issues uh, that we faced recording this podcast, scheduling conflicts. Uh, we had to reschedule a few times. Uh, you can hear in my voice uh, throughout the recording that I wasn't feeling 100%. Um, there was a power a power outage just as we sat down to record. Uh, there were internet troubles, microphone troubles. Um, so although the audio is still fine, it's glitching a few places and it does not undermine the incredible um, content that Dr. Ziegler was able to share with us. Um, so we apologize uh, that it's not up to our usual standard, but we're sure uh, you will be able to enjoy and benefit greatly from what Dr. Ziegler had to share. Um, so having said that, uh, let's jump in to our episode with Dr. Yael Ziegler. We are delighted to be joined uh, on this episode of the podcast by Dr. Yael Ziegler. Dr. Ziegler, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So at the time of recording, we're just over a week away from Tisha B'Av. Uh, given the past year or so that we've had, what are you reflecting on as we approach Tisha B'Av? Well, you know, I think a lot of people do have a little bit of a hard time the experience of Tisha B'Av. It's, of course, commemorating something that happened many, many years ago. Um, sometimes I think about what Rav Soloveitchik said about the way that we approach Tisha B'Av as kind of the mirror image of the way that we experience Avelut, right? So that Avelut, we start with Aninut, which is a very intense experience. We move on to the period of Shiva followed by the period of Shloshim, followed by the year. So you're sort of um, starting with the height of intensity and moving away from it because that's the emotional experience. We sort of artificially create an emotional experience. You have to do the opposite, right? So we start with the three weeks and that has, you know, kind of a light experience of mourning. We move into the nine days and we culminate with Tisha B'Av and that prepares us to try to sort of get ourselves into the experience of Avelut, of, of, of mourning, because it's something that isn't necessarily uh, at the forefront of our experience, given that, you know, it's not, uh, uh, it's 
something that happened so many years ago. Over the past you know, year and a half or so, uh, many people have been contending with the difficulties of the pandemic, of COVID, of, of, of you know, different things that have been happening within our communities, within the world community. And you know, I think that has given people an opportunity to reflect on you know, some of the difficulties of being human, some of the uh, unexpected um, kind of tragedies that are somehow, sometimes thrown our way, and how we grapple with God in, in that context, which is really, I think, so much of what we are doing on Tisha B'Av, and particularly when we're reading Megillat Echa. I will say one thing on a personal note, which is that I personally do not have a hard time preparing for Tisha B'Av, and that's because Today is Kavchet Tammuz. Today I have Yartzeit, so maybe it's an opportunity for me just to say, you know, that um, for me, my mother really symbolized everything that was the opposite of what brought about the Chorban, according to Chazal, right? My mother was a person of uh, a great Ahavat Yisrael. She had great love for people. She had great love for Yerushalayim. She had great love for, for you know, for, for Torah and for Eretz Yisrael. And so, you know, when I experienced this period, I experienced this period in a very very personal way. It's it's almost the the opposite of what Rev Salavechik was saying about how you have to sort of get yourself into the mood. People who come together, these two experiences, the personal experience of remembering my own grappling with um, you know with God and with tragedy and with what it means to be a religious person who copes with a, a very difficult world that we live in, one that we don't always um, anticipate some of the difficulties that are thrown our way. And it causes us, I think, both both to grapple with God and also maybe to deepen our relationship with God. So I suppose, uh, you know, following on from from what the Rav says, you know, that the, the, the three weeks and the nine days in Tishbab being sort of a, a mirror image of, uh, you know, uh, acute mourning. Um, how do you think Eicha and Tishbab uh, can also be opportunities to guide us um, to find hope and, and faith in challenging and, and turbulent times. Um, if it's you know, that mirror image, so how does, how does it sort of uh, like give us like a, something to grasp onto? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, Echa and Tishbab is, is first and foremost not about hope, right? It's not, it's, that's not what it's doing. It's really giving us the opportunity to introspect, to think about, about you know, what's difficult in life to think about how as humans, we live in a world in which we don't always understand the world around us and how we contend with that sort of a, that sort of world. You know, what does it mean? What does my relationship with God mean when, you know, sometimes bad things happen to good people? What what does it mean when, you know, a building collapses in Surfside and, you know, lots of people die and that's, you know, that's not necessarily, I, I understand, not 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 necessarily. I don't understand that right? very, very clearly. So I think first and foremost, I would say on Tisha B'Av, uh, we experience more than anything else the uh, the the what it means to be or what what, what it means what is difficult about being human right uh, and yet I still think that there is an answer to your question where we do find some kind of hope uh, in in that and there is a lot of hope that you can find by properly studying a certainly I have more of an optimistic personality and one of the things that people always ask me was how have you spent seven years immersed in Megillat Echa and and the answer really is is that I did find a lot of messages of hope in it but I'll start really with something broad which is that you know when you look at Megillat Echa 
within the context of the Tanakh, one of the things I think that you know you're, you 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 see is that the events that Megillat Echa uh, arc is commemorating um, are events that kind of spell the end of biblical history, or or they they seem to. Biblical history starts with Avraham, right, and it starts with God telling Avraham, or, or Jewish history, right? Am Yisrael's history starts with Avraham, and it starts with God telling Avraham, Lech lecha metzcham, lecham, avicha, asher eka, right? Go to the land of Israel. There, I'm going to give you a blessing, you know, to make a great nation, to have descendants, and to build something great in the land. And, you know, the rest of the Torah is moving us towards the ability to begin to realize that promise. Starting in Sefer Yehoshua, we've really begun to implement that promise and that and and to build a society and and eventually of course Davidic dynasty and to build the Beit Hamikdash and you know this seems to be what biblical history is guiding us towards and of course the events of the Chorban in 586 BCE seem to bring the whole story crashing to the ground it's it's not just you know any calamity it's a calamity that seems to represent the end of biblical history. And what I think is really extraordinary and and, and almost completely unexpected is that Sefer Melachim, Megillat Echa, uh, uh, descriptions, all the different biblical books that deal with this period, whether it's Yirmiyahu or Yechezkel or Tzfanya or, you know, or, or Sefer Melachim or Megillat Echa, they are not the end of the Tanakh. What is really extraordinary is that after Megillat Echa, we have Chagai, we have Zechariah, we have Malachi, we have Ezra, we have Nehemiah, we have, you know, the continuation of biblical history. And I think that that already is such a critical point, one that has really sustained Am Yisrael. Pastrophe doesn't necessarily mean it's over, right? A terrible calamity, even of the scale of the Chorban, which I think is something that is, you know, particularly um, <clears throat> cataclysmic because it really represents represents the crashing of all our hopes, right? The, the, this ideal world, which has sort of come crashing to the ground. Um, it, it, it doesn't mean that it's over. We can pick up the pieces. We can rehabilitate. We can begin to reconstitute ourselves as a nation. We can begin to dream again and, and, and try to rebuild ourselves into a society, maybe even using the lessons of what we learned from from the collapse, from the destruction. And, and that's something that has not just sustained us throughout Jewish history, I would say, especially in our century, right? For those of us who, you know, are, 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 are thinking of the Shoah and, you know, it's very hard when you're, when you're, when you're experiencing um, uh, Tisha B'Av not to try to put it into your own reality and to say, well, yes, of course, we, we know a little bit of what Am Yisrael must have been going through uh, during the, and yet one of the promising messages of the Tanakh is that that doesn't mean the end, right? And of course, 1945, uh, you know, when you looked around, at, you were just simply, you know, horrified by what had happened to the Jewish people. Three years later, we were already beginning to set up the state. So, you know, that's not a one-time event in Jewish history. I think that's a very hopeful point. It's not necessarily the helpful point that is made in the Megillah itself, but in terms of the way that the Megillah is situated in the Tanakh, the, in terms of the way the Tanakh regards this event, it's it's not the end. I think that, um, I mean, one of the things you mentioned in uh, in the book, 
when you know talking about the language and phrasing that's used, the way that uh, sort of Yerushalayim is described, I think it's very interesting. You can imagine almost kind of like the the way that the desolation, the the silence, the sounds, the smells that are described in the Book of Eicha. You can imagine the same walking through the streets of cities in Europe, you know, in 1945 as well. So I think it's an interesting comparison. Um, and obviously, it's it's interesting that you mentioned it because I think many of us do latch onto tragedies like the Shoah to find meaning in Tisha B'Av, often at the expense of understanding and appreciating the significance of the original Khorban and its impact on Am Yisrael. Um, you know, I read through the introduction to your book and it makes you, you know, when you put it into its historical context, and I think like, I just don't know, you know, Sefer Malachim well enough. So how can we as individuals, you know, and the other, you know, the other from that you mentioned that talk about that period, how can we as individuals and communities connect to the first Qurban? Yeah, well, first of all, I'll just say that, you know, the fact that we kind of translate in our particular reality, we take our cues from Chazal here, right? Chazal do this throughout Echa Rabba, right? What are they saying? They're saying, oh, first Beit HaMikdash, let's really read into that second Beit HaMikdash. Or, um, oh, this Basuk, this is talking about the events in Beitar, right? Uh, you know, during during the period of the of the Jewish revolt. Or, you know, maybe this is talking about uh, the death of Aaron, right? You know, it's, it's kind of free-flowing, um, uh, association with all calamities, both on an individual level, on a communal level, and also on your it has such a important work because it really is meant to be read not just as about the events of 586 BCE, but about the universal experience of suffering. Now, in terms of, you know, how we can relate to, to the impact of that particular event, and that is what we try to do on, on Tisha B'Av, right? We're trying to sort of plug into what is so uh, uh, important about that event, what's so enormous about that event that we spend so much of our time and attention. Partially, I think it's what I started saying before, which is that it really represents kind of the end of a dream, right? The, the, the crash of a lot of our illusions. You know, there was a, a sense, uh, I think, first of all, of God's presence among them. Now, I do mention, in, you mentioned just now that my historical introduction to the book. And what I did in the historical introduction was I didn't tell the history, right? I, I kind of picked on certain events um, that I thought led into the Chorban in particular. And one of the things that I talked about, which is the um, the, the salvation of Yerushalayim from Sancharif, the king of Ashur, in 701 BCE. Now, it's, it's the second most important event in Tanakh, at least according to Yeshayahu, right? It's just, a, I mean, first, of course, being Yitzhak Mitzrayim. The second one is this miraculous salvation of Yerushalayim. It appears all over the place, but particularly Yeshayahu is absolutely fixated on this event because it's an incredible event, right? There are 185,000 troops coming to try to conquer Yerushalayim. The Assyrian army is a war machine. They have successfully ripped through every single city in its path. And then they get to Yerushalayim and we know what happens, right? Hizkiyahu uh, does everything right, right? He, he, he tears his clothes and he davens and he sends a message to Yishayahu and he goes to the Beit HaMikdash and, you know, Yishayahu sends a message to Hizkiyahu. He says, not only are, are the Assyrians not going to conquer Yerushalayim, not even one arrow 
is going to penetrate Yerushalayim. They won't even build a siege mound. In other words, it won't even be the beginning of the war. There's also external corroboration of this story in the um, uh, in, in some ancient Near Eastern artifacts, right? In, in the uh, prism of San Kharib uh, that we found in 1846 um, in the city of Nineveh. Um, and, and, you know, this event is such a magnificent event. It's such an important event. It's such a wonderful event. But one of the things that I claim is that it also is one of the events that ultimately leads to the catastrophe because it produces a sense of invulnerability. It produces a sense of security in Yerushalayim so that people are walking around saying, oh, Yerushalayim, it can never be destroyed. Why can it never be destroyed? Because it is under, it's the special protectorate of God. It's under God's special protection. Why is it under God's special protection? Because of course, God lives there, right? God needs Yerushalayim. He needs the Beit HaMikdash. We find echoes of this in the book of Micha, where Micha says to the people, you're doing terrible behavior in Yerushalayim and walking around saying, right, God is in our midst, nothing bad will happen to us. And of course, most particularly in Yermiahu, where Yermiahu says, you're walking around saying, right, oh, it's the place of God, it's the throne room of God, nothing bad could ever happen to us. And in the meantime, you're doing terrible things in Yerushalayim and in the Beit HaMikdash, you've turned the Beit HaMikdash into a den of thieves. And so, you know, th this goes along with, with, with what you were asking, Arya, because people create a certain kind of mythology around Yerushalayim, that Yerushalayim can never be destroyed because God lives there. And so when Yerushalayim is destroyed, it, it sends the people reeling backward. What does this mean? What does this mean about, about God? What does this mean about us? What does this mean about about Yerushalayim, about the way that we understand Yerushalayim? So, you know, that's that's only one example of some of the theological um, uh, reflections. I, I wouldn't even say reflections, confusion that that take place as a result of the destruction of, of, of Yerushalayim and especially the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. So I, I think that we have to understand that, you know, the, the loss of uh, Yerushalayim was both a was was a political loss. It was, of course, also a social collapse, right? And people who are left are taken off into exile. People have been maimed, and it's been a terrible physical, social, economic uh, blow to the people. But perhaps most significant of all, and the one that I think that we are meant to be thinking about the most, and also the what the one that I think that Echa uh, ultimately is most interested in. It's not. It's not necessarily that Echa. Uh, talks about this most directly, but the one that I think it has most interested in is this, the confusion and the theological uncertainty that accompanies uh, the destruction of, of the Mikdash. How are we supposed to reconcile with God, right? I mean, we can't bring a korban. How are we supposed to connect to God? Right? When you look at the gever, right, the gever's description of his own experience at the beginning of Paragimel, Right, what he's what what he's reflecting there. I think more than anything else. I mean, he's talking about terrible things. He's saying, I, "I'm I'm suffering terrible blows, and I'm sitting in darkness, and I feel that I'm surrounded by all sides, and I can't get out, and everything is 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 entrapping me." And it's very what he's really talking about, I think, is the absence of God. Right, his sense that he has been cut off 
from his relationship with God, from his lifeline. And we find this, I think, in several significant ways. So when the giver is describing his, his, his difficulties, he talks all the time about this hidden person who is tormenting him, right? Ani hageber ra'a oni b'shevet evrato. I am the man who has seen affliction. And there Rashi asks, who's anger, right? Who is the he? And the answer is God. But he can't even say the name God, right? And then he describes God, dov orev hu li. God is a, a lion, a bear, a predatory animal. There's nothing rational about this, right? What is happening to me makes no sense. And, and I'll just bring up one more example. And, and then with that, I'll let you ask your next question. I've been talking for a long time. But, um, you know, uh, one more example is that when this giver is describing his sense of being just, you know, kind of uh, um, uh, surrounded by this terrible uh, sense of there's no escape from the calamity. He, he even uses the tried and trust and trusted uh, spiritual road to uh, to connecting with God, and that is tefillah, right? So that in pasuchet in Paragimel, the Gever says, even when I cry out and I plead, my my tefillah is blocked off. Now, what's extraordinary about the pasuk is, first of all, obviously he, he's saying, I don't, I don't even feel that I that my tefillah is working. But what's really extraordinary about that pasuk is that the pasuk contains three first-person uh, references: ezak ashavea tefilati. Right? He's only talking about the I. It contains no references to God. There's no ata. There's no you God. There's no who. What is prayer if there's no you know, we all know Uber, I and thou, right? You know, that you know, there's there's there has to be connection for there to be prayer. But the giver feels cut off. And when I think about how to relate to some of the experiences on Tisha B'Av, one of the things that I think um, uh, uh, the, the story or the, the events produce is that sense of 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 distance from God. And and that's something that is both very frightening, but something also that that I think forces human beings to introspect, to think deeply about our relationship with God. And ultimately, I think one of the conclusions of Echa is that suffering produces introspection and, 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 and an examined life ultimately becomes a more purposeful life. So that that one of the ways that we can really experience some of the, the, the fallout from um, from from the destruction of the Beit Hamikdash, even though we never really experienced what it was like to have the Beit Hamikdash, we can still relate to some of the uh, theology that must have that must have surrounded it. So Tishbav is somewhat unique, um, as it's say that we're not we're not just thinking about sort of the mandated tragedies, um, but rather we're sort of we try and group together um, all sorts of tragedies throughout our history. Uh, whether they happened on Tishbab itself or not, um, and I wonder, like, whether there's, whether, in your opinion, there's, there's a benefit uh, to grouping all of our morning, all of our morning together like that, or whether we there should be times throughout the calendar in which we, uh, you know, shine a spotlight on certain things. Um, as I know, for example, like Ramosha Feinstein has a shiva where he, he was asked a question whether a religious Jew should commemorate Yom HaShoah in Israel. And he gives a very interesting answer, which says that the fact that we include the Shoah on Tisha B'Av is sort of an even bigger 
um, I suppose a compliment. It's the wrong word, but you know, is it a real sign of, of how seriously we take uh, remembering and, and mourning the Shoah by including it on Tisha B'Av rather than giving it its own its own sort of day? Um, I wonder whether you think, you know, from 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 your point of view, it, is it better to sort of put everything together on that one day of, of really intense mourning, um, or is there you know, is is it a better idea perhaps to give each tragedy, uh, you know, a, a moment for for its own? Yeah. Well, I mean, there are advantages and disadvantages to both. As I said before, we take our cue from Chazal. Chazal do that, and they kind of wrap together all of these different, all these different tragic events, and say, well, here's the day that we are commemorating all tragic events. And and in a way, the advantage is also what we said before, which is that we can relate to it better. You know, everybody in our generation knows somebody who went through the Shoah. I mean, that's about to end, you know, unfortunately. But, you know, we we, we live with a sense of the those events, of the event of the Holocaust. And so it's just a lot more relatable if, if you know, if on Tisha B'Av, you know, what are people doing? They're, they're watching Holocaust movies, right? They're thinking about, you know, uh, how that event was so painful and it enables them to kind of plug into events that took place more than 2000 years ago that maybe seem less, um, you know, impactful on on people's personal lives. On the other hand, of course, there's a disadvantage as well, which is that we lose the impact of that specific event, which is what I was talking about before. You know, the, 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 the sense of you know, um, uh, loss of the mikdash. What does it mean that we uh, lost our political autonomy? What does it mean that the all of the dreams and 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 hopes of biblical history seem to have come, you know, crashing to an end? Uh, what what does it mean that it appears as though God has abandoned us? I mean, so following following on from that, um, you know, so some. Lot, some tragedies, a lot of tragedies are commemorated with you know, physical monuments. You know, there's war memorials all over the world and uh, Holocaust memorials, whatever. Um, whereas, you know, there's no, uh, there's not really a, a physical monument to either Khorban, um, you know, the first or second, or, or any of the tragedies necessarily um, uh, that we commemorate on Tisha B'Av. Um, is it you know, perhaps Eicha? Uh, might serve as that memorial of the Khorban. Is, is that, you know, is that a possibility that, you know, that the Eicha is, is our replacement of a, a physical monument uh, to Khorban Habayi? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, because in Eicha, there's so much shomeimut, uh, right? There's so much emptiness and it's, we're commemorating what is no longer. And so it would seem that maybe, you know, having a monument would be, or, you know, something physical in space would be the, the opposite of what we're looking at in Echa. You know, I think about it sometimes within Tanakh, uh, you know, how do we commemorate events? So when we enter the land of Israel, we commemorate it by building a monument, right? We take these 12 stones and we set them up and it's celebrating the beginning of of constructing this space, right? This this new um, uh, task that we have, which is you know actually building something in the land. Uh, but when we come out of Egypt, we commemorate it with shiratayam, right? With words, right? It's a, a different sort of commemoration. And you're saying something similar about Echa, right? That Echa ultimately is 
the way that we commemorate uh, these events. Um, I think that, you know, Echa is, because it's poetry and poetry is designed to make people feel something rather than to make people know something, right? It's appealing to the heart more than to the mind. Um, and so, you know, there are tools that we use um, in Echa to try to make people have an experience of mourning, right? Echa, not just, I mean, also embedded within the text, but also even what we do during the reading of Echa, right? So we dim the lights and everybody sits on the ground and we use very mournful uh, uh, tones and, and tunes uh, to, to chant the, the Megillah. And so the, the, the reading of Megillah Echa beyond the words themselves is meant to evoke an experience of mourning. Um, but I mean, I think also the fact that we have a text, you know, as opposed to, um, you know, a building. I mean, you know, in addition to, 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 to the fact that, you know, really we're commemorating the crashing of buildings, which, which is what I said before, but the fact that we have a text means that ultimately we're also trying to, uh, we're also trying to learn about, uh, about the events, right? It gives, it, the, having a text gives it depth, it gives it, you know, contours and, and vibrancy, right? And the minute that you're looking into the text itself, you're emerging with more, a, a more deeper understanding of the experience and of the events that we're commemorating. So, I, you know, yes, I do think that Echa is the, what we have in order to commemorate. Of course, you know, Echa is also a lamentation. Right? What did Yirmiyahu do uh, following the death of Yoshiahu? He wrote lamentations. It wasn't just an expression of his own feelings. It was also an attempt to try to commemorate uh, Yoshiahu's death with a communal experience of, of, of mourning. And David does the same thing after the death of Shaul, after the death of Yonatan. Right? So this is certainly uh, a, a, what we would say is a suitable commemoration of mourning. Uh, you mentioned before in terms of the the poetry of of the book of Eicha, um, and you know, linking in, we had a, a few episodes ago. We had a discussion about the uh, the new Koran Tanakh uh, with Professor Willie, who I know uh, you know uh, well, um, and I know you're obviously involved in 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 the in the Tanakh as well. And we th think of Tanakh as you know biblical, like the genre is biblical. Um, when really, obviously, Tanakh is comprised of a number of different genres. So can you expand a little bit on the idea of, you know, what the genre of Eicha is and how does that put across the themes that you've mentioned? Yeah. Okay. But first, let me say that I really enjoyed that episode with Will Lee and also with Jessica Sachs. That was a, that was wonderful. I, I really enjoyed that. Um, now, in terms of of the genre of Echa, so Echa is biblical poetry. It, of course, makes the book a little bit less accessible, right? It's, it's less accessible to people, I think, than Migilat Root, for example. Um, you know, any story is just easier to access. Uh, but one of the, I think, really wonderful things in poetry is what I was saying before, which is that poetry is designed to evoke emotions. If I want to tell you a story and I want you to have the information from that story, I'll tell it to you as a narrative. If I want to tell you something that is designed to make you feel what I'm feeling, I'm going to use poetry to do so, right? So that in general, emotions are conveyed using poetry. Um, and, and there are different techniques that are used here in order to evoke emotions. So, you know, I'll give you one example 
uh, which is, uh, you know, it, it always sounds boring when I say the word meter. I don't know. Some people get excited by it, but most people, I think, you you know, you hear meter and you think, I don't know, high school poetry or something. But, um, but you know, there is um, there is very specific and interesting phenomenon of the use of meter in Megillat Echa. Um, in general, in biblical poetry, um, meter is evenly balanced. That means if you have a binary sentence, which is a sentence that is divided into two, then both sides of that sentence, and the two parts of that sentence, have equal meter, which means the same number of stressed syllables on each side. Okay, now that's something that, you know, we, we don't pay attention to when we're speaking. We don't pay attention to meter. But of course, I, I mean, all three of us are olim. And I know that in the beginning, when I first made Aliyah, I think that the most annoying thing that Israelis felt about my attempts to try to speak Hebrew was that I put the wrong, the, the, the stress on the wrong syllable, and it was very annoying, right? In other words, you know, as soon as you hear it, you know that you're hearing something that you know you're you're hearing something you can't necessarily even define it but you know it's off and that's pretty much what's going on in um in in Migilat Echa in Migilat Echa we have about 50% of the sentences are uneven they're uneven in terms of their um in terms of the stress syllables in a very consistent way in which the first part of the sentence has more stressed syllables than the second which gives this sense that the sentence kind of trails off without really finishing, right? I'll give you an example, right? From Parak Aleph Pasukei, Hayu Sareha Lerosh Oiveha Shalu. Right? You're, I, I mean, I don't know if I conveyed that properly, but really, what I what I want you to hear is that you're waiting for that. You, the biblical listener, who who knows that biblical poetry is even you understand that i couldn't finish that sentence it almost creates a sense of choking back the end of this i can't finish my sentences right and you know this is such an important phenomenon in in the book of echa there was a 19th century uh, german scholar by the name of karl buddha who called this kina meter right the meter of lamentation and you know he talks a lot about how you know what it means to not finish your sentences i'm going to just add one point which is that you know in migilat echa it also creates a sense of an imbalanced world right there isn't really balance in the book and you feel it whether or not you know you feel it or not you're supposed to feel it we we've kind of ceased being the biblical listener right and as we're, we're much more biblical readers Fortunately and unfortunately, I mean, we're all lucky we have Koran to provide us with lots of books, right? But, you know, I don't know, a couple hundred years ago, most people couldn't afford books or certainly couldn't afford the amount of books that we have. And they were they were relying on hearing the Megillah and that had certain advantages. And so when they heard biblical poetry that was choppy and that was not harmonious, it creates a, a, a kind of a sense of of, of disharmony. And I think that that's a technique, which is just one of many techniques that is used in Migilat Echa and that is designed to create that, you know, kind of evocative, that, uh, that attempt to evoke from us um, a certain kind of emotion, a certain kind of emotional experience 
as we're hearing the 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 words of Echa. So you know, in other words, beyond the substance of the book, we also have the form of the book, which contributes greatly to the kind of experience that we're having as we're listening to the words. Um, you mentioned before about Echa Rabba, and I know obviously in the book and in your Shirim on Echa, you talk a lot about the. I guess the role of Midrash in helping us understand the Sefer. Um, and I guess while we're talking about previous current episodes, obviously we had a discussion where uh, in an episode with Simi Peters and Nati Helfgott about, you know, often people write off Midrash. And so they know it's Midrashim, it's not as important. How is Eicha Rabbah sort of essential to understand the book of Eicha and also to connect with Tishbav? Okay, so first of all, I did not hear that episode. And I'm very glad you mentioned it because I'm going to listen to it today. I think both... I, very much interested in hearing both what Simi and what Natty have to say about Midrash. I'm the last person that would ever be dismissive of Midrash. Anybody who's been in any of my classes knows, you know, that I have uh, a great deal of respect for Midrash and what the Midrash is trying to do. And also, I think, for how the Midrash is uh, such a careful and sensitive reader of the text. That having been said, uh, Echa Rabbah does something, I think, really extraordinary with the text of Echa, oftentimes, I mean, not every single Midrash. Echa Rabbah is a, 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 quite a book. Uh, it's a long book. It's also one of the earliest book of Midrash Rabbah. As we know, the Midrash Rabbah are not uh, one uh, coherent work, right? They're not a coherent corpus. Each one was written at a different time. They're in different languages. There are different Chachamim involved. And Echa Rabbah is probably our second earliest Midrash Rabbah, the earliest being Bereshi Rabbah. So the reason that Eich Rabbah was completed so early is because Chazal needed to interpret and understand the book of Echa. I mean, they were contending with their own calamities, with their own catastrophe, with their own sense of disappointments and confusion and you know grappling with God's role in their life now that the second Beit HaMikdash was destroyed and all of the terrible events that 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 follow from that and of course you know the exile etc etc so you know Chazal are, are are looking to Echa for I wouldn't even just say answers I would say for um, giving their uh, constituents that which they need. In other words, you know, they're trying to provide certain messages, messages of hope and consolation and rehabilitation and, you know, reconciliation with God. And they're using Echa as a springboard for giving those messages. What's extraordinary, in my opinion, is that those messages don't really appear in Echa. Most of the messages that Chazal are looking for are not part of Echa. And I think when I when I uh, studied, you know, Echa Rabbah, one of the things that I emerged with from my study is a renewed appreciation for Chazal as educators and as leaders of the community, because they were willing to do some very bold and creative things in order to get Echa to, to, to get Echa to say what they needed it to say, to tease out of Echa those messages that they wanted to give to their to, to their community who needed those messages very much. I'll give you an example. I'll give you two examples. One example is uh, the phrase "Ein Menachem Li" or "Ein La Menachem," which appears in in different variations five times 
in the first parak. I mean, it doesn't get plainer than that, right? There is no comforter for Yerushalayim. So, you know, what is Chazal going to do with that, right? Because, you know, they they need Echa to give comfort. And so there's a, a wonderful Midrash. I think it's in Parak Aleph Midrash Kavav, but I'm not 100% certain, where where the Midrash says, Right? Every place where it says Ain in Tanakh, eventually there is. Right, and then they bring you know a series of examples. It says, uh, you know, Sarai was was barren. Ain lavalad, right? She has no offspring. but in the end she has. And then they bring a bunch more examples. Most of them are from barren women. One is also from barren city of Zion, right? But the idea is is that they basically take this pasuk and they turn it on its head, right? Because they completely reverse the meaning. And in my mind, that's not Chazal don't know how to read Ches Vashem, right? That Chazal don't know how to read the Pesukim. Of course they know exactly what the Pesukim are saying, but they are trying to find almost a textual basis for mining the book for the kinds of messages that they deem necessary for their own community. Now, <clears throat> I'll say something else. Uh, I'll give one more example, which is a more general example, which is that, you know, if you look in Echa, uh, what you find are two radically different perceptions of God, right? I, I talk about this a lot in my book. I think it's kind of the basis for the theology of Echa. Uh, you know, if anybody doesn't, uh, you know, d- doesn't feel that they have the time to go through the first 500 pages of the book. It's the last chapter of the book. I really talk about this a lot, the theology of Echa. And 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 that is that, you know, there are really two different ways of presenting God's role in the book. One way is Sadiq Hashem Kifihu Mariti, right? God is just because I rebelled against him. And so whatever he did here is just. And that seems to be a uh, a depiction of God as a just God. I mean, that's clearly what it is. And the other is Haya Hashem Ke'oyev, right? Bila Yisrael. Three times in Parak Bet, God is described as like an enemy. Now, you might want to concentrate on the words like, like an enemy, but not actually an enemy. I, I don't know. That never really calmed me, right? I mean, you know, God is being called an enemy here of, of Am Yisrael. Right. By the way, there's only one other place in all of Tanakh where God is described as an enemy of his own people. Uh, it's in Yeshayahu, at the end of Yeshayahu. And Yeshayahu right away corrects it, right? Right away. He says, well, you know, God was angry at us until we became our enemy, but he's really our father, right? So Yeshayahu doesn't stick with it for long. But Echad does. And there's a real sense of uh, outrage at God in, in, in some of these prakim, particularly in Parak Bet, right? Particularly in the second Parak. And so, you know, the, um, the the Midrash, it's untenable for the Midrash, right? And so one of the things that the Midrash does, oh, I'll say one more thing about God in Echa, and that is that in Echa, God never appears, right? He never appears. He never says, don't worry, you know, Koamar Hashem, you know, Hatishkach Isha Ula Merachem Ben Bitna Gam Right? God never says, Don't worry, I'm not gonna forget you. You know, it, it could never happen. No, God never speaks, God never appears, God never gives the Gevara Yeshar Koach or you know, or or Yerushalayim some kind of of, of empathy. And in, in Echa Rabba, that situation is totally reversed. And it's, it's, I think it's, a, it's, it's a really an, an extraordinary um, uh, thing that 
throughout the book of Midrash, you see God mourning with the people, consoling the people, going with the people into Galut, crying. And, you know, there's even one of the, I think, the most evocative Midrashim is when, you know, God takes Yirmiyahu to go see Yerushalayim and to see the destruction. And they have this whole conversation. And then God says, you know what I'm like? It's like a man who has only one child and he builds him a, a wedding canopy and he brings his child in to have him get married and the child dies under the wedding cam- canopy. And God says, you know, I'm that father, right? So who's the primary victim of of the, the, the terrible destruction? In Eicharaba, it's God. And there's something very, very comforting about that. Now it completely reverses you know, what what Echa is, is doing with regard to God. I mean, Echa leaves us really quite um, confounded and disturbed. And, you know, it, it, it forces us, I, I said this in the beginning, right? What Echa is trying to do is to force us to grapple with, with God, with some of our questions, with some of our, our uh, confusion, with looking around at a world that doesn't always make sense to us. But Chazal di- couldn't leave it that way. Right. And so, you know, they, they and, you know, there are a lot of things that that in Echaraba that that are like this. So, you know, that's those are just two examples. I, I, I really uh, love Echaraba. I mean, it's so much so that I probably wouldn't be able to learn it on Tisha B'Av, even though I know you're allowed to technically. But. <laughs> I mean, so that, that sort of leads nicely into into what I think will probably be our, our final question today. Um, I, this may reveal sort of just how how lowbrow I, I tend to be, but one of the things that sort of really gets me, uh, me in sort of the right frame of mind, because you mentioned um, you know Hashem being referred to as as an Oyev, um, which is you know in in uh, in the West Wing, uh, there's an episode where President Bartlett sort of finally loses loses uh, his his temper effectively with God, uh, and there's a very powerful scene in which he sort of shouts at god he calls him a, a feckless thug um and you know it's a very powerful moment for any fans of the west wing um and sort of i, I always feel that as well you know seeing hashem referred to as an oyev sort of like am israel whoever is sort of taking out their frustration at themselves but directing it uh towards god but, so I, I suppose my question is and you sort of just, you hinted just now you know what what's the one or two sort of passages either of Eicha or Eicha Rabba um, that, you know, really gets you in the right frame of mind every year uh, for Tisha B'Av. Um, I suppose both going into and perhaps, you know, the, the, the Menachem, you know, you know, like where it is, you know, Havalan, like what gets you in the right frame of mind for Tisha B'Av and what sort of really brings you out of it uh, on, on the 10th of Av as well? Okay, so well, this is a long one. Um, I mean, I just have a lot of uh, uh, thoughts about that. I mean, you know, really, the the um, some of the most powerful psukim uh, that are you know expressing the the confusion and the perplexion appear in um, in Prakim Bet and Dalid, right? So that you know, in Parak Bet, I think one of the most evocative psukim are when the um, Yerushalayim turns to God and says, Look out and see, to whom did you do this? Right? And then describes the women eating the children. I'm not going to uh, read that pasuk, but then they go, uh, uh, Yerushalayim goes on and says, Harakta biyom apecha, tavachta lo chamalta. 
right? You killed on the day of your anger, you slaughtered and you did not pity, right? And that's, I think, one of the most um, frightening descriptions in which a human being turns to God and says, I don't understand. I don't understand the world around me. I don't understand your role in the world around me, right? Look out and see, see what a world you have created. And it's extremely, I think, uh, bold um, uh, description. I mean, I, I will say one thing. I grew up in a more base Yaakov um, educational system. And, you know, uh, we were taught that, that, you don't get angry at God, right? That that if something bad happens, you say Gamzula Tova and and you say this is also good and you move on, or you say Tzadiku Hashem, Kifiu Mariti. And one of my most shocking experiences, I think, in my uh, you know, early adult life was really reading a ha because it just seemed to me to be so blasphemous. Or is that Pasuk to me is confounding within the context of my, let's say, you know, um earlier education. Um, and yet, of course, I think that Echa, um, it, that's not the only portrayal of God in Echa. And it's not the only thing that prepares us for Tisha B'Av, because what we have in the center of Echa is a different sort of grappling with God. In the center of the central um, uh, chapter, we have the only theology in the book. And that uh, theological section, which is only 19 sentences long, right, from Pasuk Aleph through Pasuk Lametet, it begins with the words, Zot Ashiv El Libi Al Kain Ochil. This I will think about, this I will put on my heart, and therefore I will have hope. Now, Chazal loved that Pasuk, which you can understand why, right? What, what will I think about that will give me hope? And what are they thinking about? So there's really two major points that are being made here in the middle. One is, Chasdei Hashem Kilo Tamnu Kilo Chalu Rachamav. What really gives me hope? Knowing that God is compassionate, that God is filled with rachamim, he's filled with chesed, with loyalty, with loving kindness to his people. That's an axiom that once one sits and thinks about God, one recognizes that God is not running the world in some sort of, uh, you know, cruel or arbitrary way, right? And that leads the gever to say, what can any living person really complain about he can only turn inward right because of course the sense is is that if god is good right and and we accept that as an axiom then the world around us is designed to make things good right and that's the other point i think that we have here at the middle what's really i think kind of both ironic and surprising in the very center of the book of Echab. If you know, uh, the central chapter has a triple acrostic, right? So that, you know, the, the, the letter Aleph appears three times and the letter Bet appears three times. Now, usually when you're doing that, you, you vary the word, right? You don't use the same word for the letter Aleph three times in a row, you use different words. Um, there's only two letters that actually have the same word appear three times in a row. One is the letter Tet which is, you know, right there at the center of the alphabet or close to the center of the alphabet. And the yes. word that appears three times, tov, 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 right? What's at the center of Echa is good, is good, is, is, is finding that there is good in this world, that God is, uh, is, is, is there to create a good world and that somehow even the experiences that swirl around us that may leave us confused, outraged, 
bewildered, right, and, and, and struggling with our place in this world, but that ultimately what we find when we dig deeply enough inside of ourselves is that we find the good of human existence, right? It's not absurd. It's not meaningless. It's, it's, it's good and it's purposeful and it's uh, buffered by this sense that God is good and compassionate. And even if today one is experiencing something difficult, God's kindness is chadashim labikarim, they renew themselves every morning, right? And 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 the the, uh, the second point that I'll make, and with this, uh, you know, uh, I'll conclude my answer. And that is that you know what really uh, you asked about yud ba'av, right? right? Is what what Im, what enables us to emerge from echa, and that is I think you know the whole process of leaving behind tisha ba'av and moving towards rosh hashanah involves at least from a you know a, a communal ritual perspective it involves reading the sheva nechemta right that's what we do that's what takes us from tishbav to rosh hashanah right so we have those seven prophecies of consolation from the book of ishayahu all of those prophecies of consolation um meet echa linguistically and thematically i think that ishayahu who's talking about these uh uh, prophecies of consolation are talking about the period of Shivat Zion, right? Some people don't know that because Yeshayahu is an eighth century BCE prophet, but his final chapters are describing events that take place in the sixth century BCE with the return from Bavel, right? Those are very explicit. I mean, he names Koresh and he, he says to them, Seumi Bavel, leave Bavel, right? So however you understand that, but you know, those, those um, specific prophecies of consolation are there to fix Echa and they kind of move us out of that period of mourning towards reconciliation with God, right? And so, you know, when we get to um, Rosh Hashanah and we blow the shofar, we actually, uh, you know, cite this pasuk from Echa, right? We say, Koli shamata al ta'aleim oznecha l'ravchati l'shavati, right? That is one of the psukim that takes us to um, uh, blowing the shofar, right? So we're, we're moving out of um, out of the period of mourning, Yeshayahu is the prophet of Nechemta. He's the prophet of consolation. And he is giving us the tools to not just leave behind the terrible events and the mourning and to fix those events and to rebuild Yerushalayim and to bring the people back from the exile, but also and perhaps first and foremost to reconcile the people with God and to enable us to move into Rosh Hashanah with Tisha Abba'av, far, far behind us. Dr. Yael thank you so much for joining us on the Quran Podcast. Um, thank you for helping us both through this podcast today and also your new book, uh, Eicha, Lamentations, Faith in a Turbulent World, to connect to both the Avelut, the morning of Tisha B'av, but also the hope and the Nechama, the comfort of Tisha B'av. Um, and obviously, please God, uh, for your Yahatai this week, wish you a Richa Yamim and also a personal Nechama. And together with all of uh, Ami Israels, we move towards Tisha B'av. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
Well, that's all for this week's episode of the Corin Podcast. Thanks again to Dr. Yael Ziegler for joining us. If you'd like to purchase Dr. Ziegler's book on the book of Eicha, Lamentations, Faith in a Turbulent World, you can buy that now on our website, corinpub.com, and get a special 10% discount using discount code podcast at checkout. And of course, her other book, Ruth, From Alienation to Monarchy, is also available on the website as well. If you'd like to be in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at corinpub.com or you can also reach us on all social media platforms at Corin Publishers. Until next time, thanks for joining us on the Corin Podcast and wishing all our listeners a tzomkal, a meaningful fast, and please God, this year should be the last Tisha B'Av that we mark and see the rebuilding of the Bet HaMikdash and Yerushalayim. Bimheir Abiyamein.